This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. How's it going? Good. I don't know if we can say this on the show or not, but I got accepted to RailsConf. Yeah, I did too. Did I figure we can talk about it on the show. Yes, she did. I figure we can talk about it on the show because uh, the program will be out by the time this goes out. It said the 9th, which is not by the time this goes out. Oh. <laughs> so we can hold it till Friday. Oh, we can hold it till Friday. I mean, I'm pretty sure it'll be fine if, if, we, if, it, if we say that we got accepted two days early. Okay. Let's leave all this in the show. <laughs> right. Anyway. Cool. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm more excited uh, for Tess getting accepted than than me. Cool. Uh, because this will be the first RailsConf, or really conference in general, where I don't have to ditch my wife for the speaker's dinner. <laughs> so I'm very excited for that. That's why you're excited. Not because she gets to speak, but because you don't have you. She can come with you to dinner. <laughs> I always, I, I always feel bad. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, I am surprised that I am accepted, I guess, but uh, excited. It'll be... Which talk of yours got accepted? A Migration's Tale, Up and Down Again. So it is a talk that I originally pitched with Caleb. We wrote the proposal together a couple years ago about how migrations work and how to extend them and things. And I think it was fairly well received, but did not get accepted when I pitched it originally. And so this year I brought it up to Caleb again and I said, did you end up ever giving this talk? Are you coming to RailsConf this year? It turns out he's not coming to RailsConf, but I resubmitted the talk anyway and, you know, tailored it a bit more towards the track that it's in, which is um, the How Stuff Works track. I forget the actual title of it, but basically digging into how internals of Rails work. And so it just seemed like it had a natural fit in a track. So that's the one I'm giving. How about you? Cool. I was actually surprised. So the one that got accepted was uh, Debugging Rails Itself. Oh, Okay. Cool. I'm pretty sure that making Active Record twice as fast was like one of the early acceptances as well. And then, you know, I can't give both. Mm-hmm. So we'll both be there. Yeah. I just talked to Tom. He's going to come. So, you know, we'll record some shows. Sweet. <laughs> That's what I had this week. <laughs> Good show. I should ask Sarah to put me before Tess in the schedule. So that way I can promote her talk during my talk. Hmm. Sure. Also, then you get your talk done first, and you know you don't have to worry about it. Be I mean, right. also that. <laughs> I don't worry about talks as much as I used to. I worry about it leading up a lot more than I do actually giving them. I'm, I'm a lot more confident in giving them. Uh, I mean, I worry about them leading them. up to the conference, but at the conference, I never feel worried about talks anymore. Yeah. It's crazy to me that, like, I, this is going to sound a little bit of a humble brag, but, like, this will be my fourth straight speaking at a RailsConf, and that's, like five years ago is not a thing I would have ever imagined being able nice. to say. Yeah, so, that beats my streak. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I'm, I'm excited. And uh, I texted my wife when I got the acceptance and said like, hey, looks like I'm going to do this again. And she was like, congratulations. And then I was immediately like, so <laughs> prepare for stressed out me as I prepare another conference talk. She was like, yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and prepare to listen like they've gotten prog- I feel like they've gotten progressively less interesting to her who and, and she is my test audience for all of these things and so when it started out it was like code review which is really just like how to give feedback right and so like that's generally applicable and she had lots of good feedback about content for the talk 
And then uh, I, the next thing was a workshop, so I don't think I really did much there. Uh, and then the next thing was to talk about rest. And that was a little more technical. And she had some guidance on like presentational style and things I could cut and things I could tighten up. And then this one's going to be like a dive into how migrations work. <laughs> so they've gotten progressively that... less interesting, I think, to her. So Yeah, the how migrations work talk does not sound super relevant to an audience that is not uh, Rails programmers. Yeah. So yeah, it'll be fun. I'll make her sit through it. And, uh, you know, she'll give me some good advice, I'm sure. I'm sure she'll find things to comment on. Speaking of migrations. Yes. Somebody made a Rust-based migration library for diesel that oh. adds like a create table DSL. Okay. So you had kind of made an intentional decision not to do this, right? Correct. So I, I don't want it in diesel. This is, this is a library for use with diesel. Mm -hmm. What I am going to do is add a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of code to diesel so that users of this library just have to enable a feature flag in diesel. Because mm -hmm. while I don't want anything other than just plain SQL file migrations, I don't really know what else there would be besides like SQL file migrations and Rust migrations. Mm -hmm. But so assuming that the only alternative to SQL file is Rust migrations, I don't want anything in diesel itself other than the SQL file form. But I did design the infrastructure for it so that there could be multiple formats and that individual migrations could be in one format or another. So you could have one migration that is a SQL file and then another migration that is a Rust file. So you can switch back and forth between the two? Exactly, on a per-migration basis. Okay. And so all it'll require for me to, to quote-unquote support this is just add a feature flag, basically a way of saying, hey, this is an optional dependency of diesel CLI, or of diesel migrations, actually, and diesel CLI. And then if that feature is enabled, basically I have a function called um, migration for path, I think, where it just takes a path and returns a migration object. So basically, before I do my logic, I will call out to this single function that this library gives to me, which is given a path, give me optionally give me back a migration object. And so if it gives me a migration object, return that. And if it doesn't give me that, then do what I was doing before. So it's two lines of code. And, you know, I'll have to figure out how to make it clear, like, hey, this library is not part of diesel. The diesel getter room is not a place to ask for help with that library. <laughs> right. Anyway, my point being, so the reason I've avoided this is because it's a lot of work. It's been a continuous source of bugs and or confusion in Rails from a maintenance point of view. And I don't think it provides enough benefit over raw SQL files. Yep. Because the only benefit that you really get is, well, there's two benefits, one of which I don't care about. The one that I don't care about is it makes it so your migrations work on multiple backends, which like that's important for diesel when we need to create one-off tables in our own test suite. But that's not a typical use case, and a normal application should not be switching between databases. Mm -hmm. And then the other benefit is that you can sometimes get down for free, which right. like that's useful. That's a nice thing to have. I just don't think it's worth the cost of maintaining it. But if some, I am super happy to see it exist and not be the one maintaining it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, it's funny that this came up because that was actually as I've you know it's been about an hour since I learned I'd be giving this talk and I started kind of thinking through things in my head and I was like, should there be an entire section on like, what if we didn't do any of this? Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> What if we did nothing of this? What, what would it look like? And I think the unfortunate truth is if I had that part of the talk, I would say like, yeah, we should, we should have done nothing, none of this. <laughs> but there are parts of it, I think that in addition to the parts that you cited, there's also like the matter of you can be a Rails developer and move from a project on Postgres to a project on MySQL to a project on something else and just do, you know, t.timestamps, right? Sure. And not know 
the underlying and that a, a little bit touches on like the ability to go from database to database but i think the context here is different it's just like it, it allows me to abstract away some of the implementation details of how you store a timestamp in a database right yeah that is one of the things that i thought about a lot with both migrations and just in general is structuring diesel very early on and of course this fell apart as soon as i started supporting not postgres so Actually, the current state of things is timestamps, at least automatically handled by Diesel, is only supported on Postgres. And by automatically supported by Diesel, I mean in that the way you do timestamps, well, created at, you just do default now. I mean, that's mm -hmm. why do you ever need anything beyond that? But for updated at, on Postgres, you call, uh, you do select Diesel manage updated at table name, um, select being because you can't just have a bare function in, in SQL. Mm -hmm. SQLite, I, I can, I'll probably add that function at some point. Uh, it turns out I just can't add that function on my SQL. Okay. Um, I can add the trigger. So the reason I, I wrote that function is because I can never remember the syntax for creating a trigger on Postgres. Right. And I can still create the trigger on my SQL, but then you'll still have to do the, you know, create trigger on table, whatever, before update for each row, whatever, <laughs> execute function, whatever. Whatever the hell the syntax is, you'll have to remember that as opposed to the nice one-off function. And the reason for that is the only way you can implement this function where it takes the table name is basically by creating a prepared statement and, and interpolating the string where mm -hmm. you create the trigger uh, and then executing that prepared statement. And if you try and do that on MySQL, it will say, this query is not supported in prepared statements yet. Yet. Someday. Yep, version 7.0, and it's not there. It's to they're totally planning on allowing you to create a trigger in a prepared statement. <laughs> so that function will never exist on my on my SQL. But that was a thing, was I also kind of wanted to abstract away, because that is a useful thing, regardless of whether it's done on your, your application server, on your database server, having it updated at timestamp that gets automatically updated is a useful thing to have, and you do kind of want to just abstract away like, hey, Please manage the updated at timestamp for this table for me. In Diesel, you explicitly say, please manage it on this table for me, as opposed to if you have a column called updated underscore something, it automatically deals with it. But only the first one of those that is named updated underscore something. Oh, is that true? That may, I believe that. <laughs> that was the case. I think I think when you discovered this, somebody tweeted at us what the actual situation is as of now. But at one point, it was like only the first column that was updated something. Anyway. Just in case you want to have a date form and a timestamp form. <laughs> right. And a timestamp TZ form or a date time form if you're on MySQL. Yeah. And there was... <sighs> That's funny that you should say that because there was a thing that came up. I don't know. I can't find it now. But there was somebody talking about their client project today and all the different timestamps that are stored on one record. And they're all in slightly different formats. Like they're not necessarily timestamps. There's one that's decimal time, which is like an invention that was... Uh, created for some reason. Actually, it was created by a ThoughtBotter in response to the previous implementation, which was a string, which was a four character string where each number was a digit. And like the time 0000, 000, 000 was undefined, but the time 2400 was midnight. So <laughs> like, just like, I don't know. And this was this was all, uh, you know, so, so there's a whole bunch of timestamps on there. But to get back for a second to the migration library aspect of it, does the diesel implementation do something like a schema.rs? Yes, but that is entirely separate from our migration infrastructure. We do not have any form of like, this is a file that you use to create your database. Mm -hmm. For us, the way you create your database is you run your migrations. Right. How do you feel about that? So like recreating the world from scratch to start a new development environment versus doing something like schema load, which you do in Rails? I think it's completely reasonable to occasionally go in and squash those down. Okay. 
So this is partially just because our, our migrations are SQL files, but like because our migrations are just SQL files, your migrations can't really ever get stale. Right, they don't change in meaning. And they shouldn't exactly. change in meaning anymore in Rails, right? With the, ver with the versioning um, now? As long as you never use code from outside of that file, the problem is if you want right. to update some data and you use a model. Right, and that's always, it's so easy to abuse that is when migrations are Ruby, right? And it's so easy to say like, oh, uh, post dot update all. And then like in late, later on, you change post to blog post and that fails. Or you change the definition of one of the methods that you end up calling. And th so this is actually one of the discussions I'm having with the author of this library, because right now the library does not provide any mechanism for like given a Rust file, run it as a migration. It simply has the DSL and that gives you back a thing that you can turn into a SQL string, which you can pass to Diesel. Mm hmm. One of the things I'm discussing with them is like, hey, so if we want to bake this into Diesel, what I need from you is a function that has this signature, which I gave before. And then the interesting part is how you define these up and down functions. And what I think you want to do is, well, you'll definitely want to compile these files on, on the fly, but I think you assume that they have two functions in them, one called up and one called down, mm -hmm. that get past a uh, connection object. Or not connection object, they have a schema object in their, in their thing. Get past the schema object and return nothing actually because you mutate it in their library if I remember correctly uh, anyway one of the cool things is just because it is a compiled language and like these are two functions that wouldn't necessarily be valid on their own and there's gonna be you know some code right before the function declarations that gets stuck in the compiled file like you can just sort of enforce that the file can't use code from inside the project right yeah you can use code from third-party libraries but which could have similar which, problems but is unlike uh, less, less likely to have the same problems Yes and no. I mean, it's likely to have problems if you bump the version, bump your dependency in a in a some very compatible way. I guess, yeah. So you keep saying this person. Do we have Do we have a name? I, I feel like I feel bad for calling them this person. <laughs> um, Katharina Space Cookie on GitHub. I don't know what her last name is, but her okay. Twitter display name is Katharina. Do you know if there's a like a reason behind wanting this solution versus writing SQL files? Because I can see like I'm trying to think of the arguments like getting back to why would you want the Ruby version? And so like the abstraction over data over database concepts that differ between databases is one. A potential other one would be like it's an easier concept to potentially learn if you kind of hamstring yourself to, I don't know about hamstring, but limit yourself to a smaller subset of SQL, right? Uh, expressible in mm -hmm. this DSL. Were there any con any conversations about other things driving towards this, or maybe in the in conversations? I'm sure that pe I'm sure that this has come up before. Like people have opened issues, like I'd like to be able to write my migrations in Rust. Yep, that has come up before. Right, and so like, what are the types of things that are? What do people cite for those types of things? Almost always the ability to switch between databases, uh, and that was the impression I got from the author of this library was that she also primarily was interested in that. She actually hadn't even considered the idea of giving you uh, auto revert. Right. Until I brought it up. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for her, it was uh, the impression I got was that it was primarily the ability to swap between databases. And then another person in a Twitter thread was talking a lot about how they just also don't like SQL and would prefer to not have to write it. Okay. Yeah. Which, you know, is an uh, opinion that some people have. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I, I also don't like SQL kind of generally speaking. Uh, it, I find it too verbose and too hard to compose and abstract away. For migrations, you're not composing or abstracting away things and you kind of do want to be very direct with your database about what you want i think and that's just my opinion right i mean that i can keep coming back to timestamps as, as a counter example to that right like so timestamps does abstract over the specific type and it also abstracts over the fact that timestamps are two columns right it's updated at and it's created at 
I mean, yeah, but again, we can build that abstraction in SQL. Can we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I was explaining earlier, right? That's what you do. Like, at least oh, on right, Postgres right, right. right now, you literally do diesel manage updated at, and then you give it a table name. Right, okay. MySQL, it'll, it would have to be a little bit more verbose, but it'll still just end up being, you know, creating the trigger, calling a diesel provided function. Now, granted, also, this is like arguably the leakiest abstraction ever, because the reason that these functions exist is because we stick a migration file in your migrations directory that creates these functions. <laughs> right. So if you don't want these functions, you can just delete them. Well, you, you can't del if you delete the migration file, we'll just keep recreating it. But you can just replace the file with an empty, you know, delete the contents of it. And then we will never try and do anything with it again. Okay. And then you don't have that function, which is important if you're trying to use uh, CockroachDB because um, it does not support, I think, functions. What is CockroachDB? <laughs> it is a database that people have been trying to use with Diesel for quite some time that uses the Postgres wire protocol. And so in theory, you should just be able, anything that supports Postgres should support CockroachDB, except, uh, you the, know, the parts Diesel of SQL assumes. that it supports, yeah. You know, the, the, the things that, that, that Diesel assumes don't mesh well. That was part of the, like, we used to just run this code whenever you established a connection, and then eventually we decided that we should put it in a migration file. Number one is that we ever want to change what these functions do so that we can gracefully migrate, ex you know, existing databases and not have to hack all that code into um, Diesel itself. And then another motivating factor was just the CockroachDB people were like, hey, I don't want this functionality. Can I turn it off? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I didn't really want to add like a boolean parameter to establish please don't do this one thing right that you're not even really supposed to know that we do in the first place so i figured yeah that works and then they can just delete the contents of the file if they don't want it but then like one of the other things is it doesn't support modifying schema inside a transaction and we run our migrations in a transaction yep uh just like why wouldn't you if your migration fails you would like to have a consistent state okay so how do you handle that we don't. I mean, that's one of those like, hey, Cockroach, if you want this to work, you need to do something other than error there. Okay. I mean, they can always just do what MySQL does and implicitly commit the transaction, which is terrible, but probably presumably easier to implement. Right. So people who wanted to use CockroachDB complained first about these functions. And so then you gave right. them a way to get rid of the functions, but then they still can't use it because <laughs> everything gets... They can't use diesel for managing migrations. Okay. But they can use pretty much everything else, I think. Okay. And it's something else that man. So what part of Diesel actually generates the migrations for, for managing created at, updated, or created at, or, or updated at, I guess? I mean, you just declare that column. Like, the only, the only thing that Diesel does is if you want, like, on Postgres specifically, we give you a function that you can call to create a trigger to automatically set updated at to the current timestamp if that row was updated. Okay. But like Diesel does not, generally speaking, know or care about timestamps. Interesting. Okay. I'm just thinking about whether or not like every time. So like Paul here, who wrote uh, the Lucky framework for for Crystal, mm -hmm. uh, we should have him on the show to talk about that sometime. But like early on, I remember him at stand up talking about how he was writing a migration library. And I remember being like, what if you didn't and you just used SQL, but he really wanted to write the migration library. And there's actually some pretty cool stuff in there. There's some cool, I don't know if I would call it an abstraction, but symbiosis <laughs> with the DSL for declaring a table, for instance. You can declare a string as optional, and then you get a nullable type, right, in the database. Mm -hmm. And if you don't declare it as an optional, which is the default, you get non-null. That's nice. Which is like kind of, you still get to keep your, like the way that you declare that is identical in Crystal 
and also when you're defining your migration, which I thought was pretty interesting. I'm not sure it warrants an entire migration library, but you know, who knows? Well, and you know, so we were talking about, right, regardless of what kind of developer you are, whether, you know, you go to one project that's SQLite, one project that's Postgres, one, one project that's MySQL, because Rails has the migration API, you know how to do the thing that you want to do regardless of the back end. The flip side of that, though, is that you have to know the Rails migration API. So if you know how to create your schema in Postgres and you come to Rails, you now have to relearn how to create a table. And I would also argue that the syntax for creating tables with the notable exception of how to do an auto-incrementing primary key, which is annoyingly inconsistent. <laughs> um, you know, in Postgres, the data type is called serial or big serial. Yep. Then in, in MySQL and SQLite, it's integer or big integer. Uh, SQLite, you can't actually call it big integer. You have to call it exactly integer primary key. And then it's auto-increment one word on, I believe, MySQL and auto-underscore increment on SQLite. I might have those backwards. Right. But other than that, like, they're generally pretty consistent in their in their syntax. Yeah. Except for the trigger stuff, right? Trigger stuff is slightly different. Trigger stuff is, is slightly different, but if you're dealing with triggers, you want it, like what triggers are capable of doing and the semantics of how they go about doing them differ so much between databases. I don't want a library to try and abstract that away for me. Right. But if you weren't going to like if going back to the Rails case, then if, if you get rid of, I mean, I guess you could get rid of the migration DSL and not get rid of created at and updated at being managed by a callback. Right, because that could still happen. Right, and that and they are that is implemented as two completely separate deals. Right. Yep. And similarly, so this is one thing that I actually think is kind of cool. If you like the way that Diesel does migrations, there's absolutely no part of Diesel's migrations that assume that you are writing a Rust project or using Diesel on that project. Hmm. And since our migrations are just SQL files, there's other stuff in Diesel CLI that is useless to you if you're not using Diesel. But everything that is Diesel database X and Diesel migration X. Those commands, they will work with literally any project under the sun. Awesome. I do wonder, so like getting down for free, right? Going back to that for a second. Sure. I'm just trying to think of, because as you were saying, being able to use this migration library externally, I remembered when I worked at Akamai, they had like a managed Postgres type thing that you can install. Like, like Akamai developed a bunch of infrastructure around Postgres and one of it was a way to do like migrations and they were just SQL files and you would do like the folders were numbered, I think, and they would inside they would mm -hmm. have an up and a down and you would. That's you know, exactly how Diesel's migrations work. Right. And so like instead of do writing that, they could have like in this world, they could take on Diesel migrations as a dependency. Right. Mm -hmm. And I started. Uh, but, Diesel CLI, but yeah. Diesel CLI. So they could take that on as a dependency if they cared to do such a thing and, and rid themselves of the custom code that they wrote for that but i started thinking about like the other nice thing we talk about migrations is the ability to auto generate a down migration and that's done by yep. basically recording the types of operate because you you get more information about the intent of the change right from the dsl because you're in, you can interpret that meaning a lot more easily than you can by like inspecting a sql string mm -hmm. and i started to think about like is is there a way where you could i feel like <laughs> obviously i could pretty easily reverse a create table <laughs> right right and and you could start from there and i i wonder if you could do better than like i'm just trying to think of examples oh yeah of... you could totally parse the sql file and try and, and do the same thing if that was a thing that you were interested in doing <laughs> i guess you know i think an important part of why revert for free is reasonable when you're when you're building a dsl uh in in 
X language. Number one, because it does not require writing a SQL parser uh, or using a SQL parser. But then number two, because um, you only have to deal with a limited subset of what is valid inside of a migration file. Right. And like I'm thinking back to how we did it in Scenic. So Scenic has reversible migrations for views. Kind of. Like it reverses the Ruby part, but it still relies on having a reference to a SQLized version of your previous view. Right. You always give it zero one view or view right. zero one dot SQL, right? You would say yeah, you would say like the Ruby version would be like I, I can't remember exactly. It would be something like update view searches version two revert to version one and so that would say like i want to go from version one to version two if i'm reversing the migration then go back to one and those those version numbers correspond by convention to a file called db slash views slash searches underscore zero one underscore zero two dot sql right but the only reason you have those files right is so that you could do auto revert right the only reason uh, not necessarily auto revert but revert of any kind right, right? revert without having to go into the database copy paste right without having to copy and paste from a previous migration or go into the database and get the definition but it does cause problems because people say like, well, how do I know? Like, it's a little harder to track what actually changed because the schema file is really hard. <laughs> like, I don't know. Now we're getting into to the vagaries of scenic implementation. But um, I feel like it's reversible, but not in the same way that like the core rail stuff is reversible. And to make it reversible in that way, I would have to understand the SQL that makes up a view. And I can't do that or have a DSL for creating views. And I'm not going to do that. You know, it's kind of funny because I was just thinking, you know, because we specifically mentioned copy paste there mm -hmm. and there will be times where specifically on crates.io where like I'm writing a migration and the down migration will involve copy pasting another migration. Mm -hmm. But the more I think about it, I realize the time I'm generally doing that is if the up migration is drop table. And yes. if, if the up migration is drop table, I'm going to have to do the same thing in Ruby. But the, and so this is part of the thing that like auto revert is this siren call, I think, because we what, what's the method called? Is it reverse revert? Where it takes a block and then you give it up, but it actually does the inverse of it. There's reversible do. Is that what you're talking about? So yes, that's what I'm so talking like about. So like if you have def change, right? And then you have a part of it that you only want to do on up or that you only want to do on down. You can go reversible do and it take it yields a direction. And then you say like dir dot up and you tell it what you want to do when you're going up. And then you that, do dir dot down not and tell it what you want to get done. Okay. That's not what I'm thinking about. So it'd be like def change and then it's, I think it's revert. Oh, yeah, you do. can give it the class name of a previous migration, and it'll reverse no, it? No, no, you don't even give it the class name of a previous migration. Like, you just give it a create table. Oh. And then up is drop table, and down is that create table. Interesting. Because I do know you can also, like, refer to a class name of a previous migration and call down as part of your Sure, or that's whatever probably the case also... Be. Right. So that's another way to go about it without having to do copy and paste, but you still have to find the migration. Well, but it's like, at that is. point, just def down, drop table foo, def up, what was in that block. Well, and also recognize that what are the chances you want to revert that? Right. Like, under what scenario would you revert your drop table? Uh, I, so... What is the scenario where you revert your drop table? I want to I want to explore this a little I mean, more. When it turns out that your code has a bug and you need to roll back the deploy. Like, oh, actually, this was just wrong. You're also going to need to restore a database backup because you've dropped the data in that table. Well, presumably drop <laughs> table is immediately preceded by adding a column to another table or columns to another table and copying the data over. Maybe, but like, I, I don't know. Like if you're just deciding like, oh, we don't need blog posts anymore, right? And Sure, so, yes. Okay, you're right. If you, I mean, if you're literally drop table and doing nothing else, yes, in that case, your, your migration is irreversible. There and are, you may as well just raise irreversible migration. I do find myself a lot of times spending a not insignificant amount of time writing down migrations for things I know we will never reverse. 
right? Yeah. Like, there's no possible way we would reverse this, but just out of like the need to be complete and the need to, I don't know, maybe it's just like my own completionist <laughs> personality. Like I'm the type that can't have unread messages in my email box. I can't, have, you know, and seeing an irreversible migration there. It's like, well, technically I, I could reverse this. It's just that like the data is now gone right. or changed in a way that is now like I, I can't get that back ever. Yeah. See, I, I just don't generally end up writing migrations that. Or drop I mean, column, right? Remove, col- remove column, remove column. Remove column. Sure. I mean, right. generally, if it's actually we don't want this data and we're going to get rid of it, like I would deploy whatever change makes that data invalid right. weeks before the migration that actually removes the, the data. Right. And then you could do irreversible. I mean, drop column is so easily reversed that like doesn't make much of a difference. You can reverse it. There's not going to be any data. Well, in it. It, I mean, it's not easily <laughs> reversed if the column was not null. Right. True. <laughs> That's a good point. What does I, does the Rails command recorder catch that? Like if you drop columns, not reversible. I mean, unless you give it the data you give type, it, you give it the type. It is reversible if right. you give, if you give it the original. If, if type. you give it the type, right? I mean, no, it won't catch that. Null false is gonna. I mean, because right. if your table's empty, right. no, that runs fine. Right, and that's one of the things I like to do when I do write the reverse. Like I always, when I write a migration, I always run it up, and then yep. I look at schema and I run it down, and there should be no diff in the schema. And if there's a diff in the schema, I've done something wrong. So uh, it's funny you mentioned that because I have written down migrations wrong periodically mm-hmm. with diesel uh, and it's, you know, mildly frustrating. But it's also part of why I recommend even in the getting started guide when I'm showing here's how you do migrations with diesel. One of the first things I say is, hey, and by the way, after you run this migration, it's generally a best practice to also do diesel migration redo to make sure that you wrote your down correctly. Of course, that doesn't necessarily fully ensure that you wrote down correctly, but it ensures that there are no errors, at least, from going down and back up, mm-hmm. which is almost always good enough. But I don't necessarily think I would need to recommend doing that if you were getting down for free. Yeah, and I will say also the fallback of the schema.rb file makes that approach a lot easier in Ruby because you just, like, did anything meaningful change? Your schema.rb file will tell you. I guess if you dumped the SQL and you committed that, you could also tell. Right. Well, you have structure.sql in Rails. Right. And if you did that, if you had like a structure.sql in your diesel project or whatever, which you could optionally do as a way to, like we talked about rolling up migrations, right? We could. It's just one of those, I'm, I'm just going to abstract over, you know, a CLI tool that exists for every database. Right. And it's yep. just one of those, you, you kind of just should know how to do PG dump. Or I don't. MySQL dump. I don't because I don't. I don't have to. <laughs> I mean, I know I how mean, to Google it, it for it. Literally, though. <laughs> right. I mean, it takes two seconds to figure out how right. to dump just the schema without data. I, th- I think it's literally pg dump hyphen d database name and then hyphen hyphen no data. I think is the command. I should have like a. I do this enough, like maybe a few times a quarter, or maybe a couple times a quarter, that I should probably just have an alias for like pg backup database just like or backup database structure backup database data or something i mean isn't the answer for that to use heroku uh yeah or specifically parity which a lot of people don't know about parity i don't know if you know about parity i know about parity. so it's a command line tool that gives you two commands i think it might give you development too so maybe it gives you three commands but the two commands i care about are staging and production and so you can say development restore production and that means like restore my production database to development and you get a copy of that and i don't have to worry about any of that stuff so that's probably what i end up doing most often (laughs) for the record the command is hyphen s or hyphen hyphen schema only there we go i like those hyphen hyphen ones nobody wants the single hyphens no (laughs) but i don't know it's it's just one of those like yes we could totally abstract over that and that would probably be a reasonable thing to do but right now everything diesel cli does is stuff that like 
requires connecting to a database and calling into code in Diesel. Mm-hmm. We don't have anything that it's where it's literally like subshell out to this other utility. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way that you, we would implement that. Like I'm not going to re-implement PG dump. Right. It'll be interesting to see what the uptake of Katharina's library is in that community. And to see like, I, I wonder if like it could also embrace like the thing I was talking about with, with Lucky's migrations, where however you define an optional type in Rust could be the way that you define an optional column. It's funny though, you know, it's when you said that I was I thought about for a minute saying if there were a config option I could set to make not null the default I would set it mm-hmm. and then I realized no I wouldn't because that now all of a sudden my migrations are subtly different from every existing database out there and people who know SQL will be confused. Yes. But that's not a problem if you're not writing SQL. Right, because <laughs> you're learning something new. Um, yes. And like you mentioned before, like now by having your own migration syntax, your own migration DSL, anybody who actually knows this underlying SQL or maybe would have been well served to learn it once, right, at some point in their career, no longer has to learn that. Or people that already do have to now learn a new DSL. And the people who just come to the DSL never are really prompted to learn the underlying SQL part. But I think, I, I think at this point, at least in the Rails community, Rails is probably better served by abstracting that away at this point. Like, I don't know. It's, I think it is, a, it is an advantage to like getting started in development to not have to also learn SQL, right? So yes, I agree that, that yes, it is an advantage to not also have to learn SQL to get started. It does bother me how far you can get as a Rails developer and know literally nothing about SQL. Specifically because there are important things as a, as a web developer, Rails or otherwise, that you need to learn about that you wouldn't, like, I guess it isn't so much a thing you learn because you learn SQL, but it tends to be a thing that goes hand in hand with it. But, like, you should understand indexes and when to use them and why to use them. Mm-hmm. And right. that's the sort of thing that, like, you can get way, way, way too far and know nothing about that. Sure. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating everybody who makes a Rails app has to fully understand this because, yes, one of the great benefits of Rails is that you can get started and have a very tight feedback loop and make a thing that works good enough very quickly knowing very little. And that's huge. But then there are just things that you should learn eventually. And it's not necessarily a trade-off where you're like, do you have a migration DSL or do you not? The trouble right. with Rails particularly comes around the schema.rb convention, right? Is like Because the minute I do something that schema.rb can't understand is when I hit problems and I can change to structure.sql, but that always has problems. And like, yeah. and I was going to, I was gonna, so I was going to get to this because b- before we went on to the, the learning thing, uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that that's true that like in diesel having this DSL exist is necessarily a hindrance because you can just write your individual migrations in SQL. So if you do come onto a project using this library, you don't necessarily have to learn the library unless right. you know the company has a policy of all migrations have to use it. Right. You can totally just write one migration in SQL. Yeah, and that's basically what I was trying to say is like in Rails, that's a little harder because then you also have to make this other decision about whether you're right. going to switch your schema format from schema.rb to structure.sql. And we were on that project where we switched to structure.sql and then we were like, forget this, we're just going to get ignore structure.sql. I mean, well, <laughs> this literally my frustration with the for- fact that you are forced to make that choice in Rails is the reason I designed it this way because I knew that I, I when I first did the uh, CLI or my, the migration infrastructure in general at the time I said I don't know if I'm ever going to want rust migrations but I know for sure if I ever do add rust migrations I'm going to want the ability to write individual migrations in SQL right because I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater <laughs> it'd be interesting to try so like you mentioned being able to use the rust CLI to do migrations like I don't think I could ever actually convince somebody to do this, but it'd be I would be interested in trying it on a Rails project and being like, no, we don't use Rails migrations. We use we use this other migration tool. Yeah. I don't know what that would end up. What would that do? Would that do anything? 
I guess it wouldn't do it. It would change the experience to like there would be no structure. Like structure load would be a no op because there would be no structure. Um, One thing you would lose is you would not get a pending migration error in development. Or actually, I think you get that in production too. You would not get an error if your migrations have been run. Oh, right. Anything that re- and you wouldn't get any of the stuff like um, any of the protection for. Or I guess you still would get protection for like dropping your production database because it you would run that task. If you ran, if for whatever reason you went, even though you're not using Rails migrations, you ran rake db drop in production, it would still fail right. because you don't, you haven't populated it with any of the metadata. But that's fine. Sure. That's what you um, want to that said, Diesel does use the same convention for database URLs, so we we look for a database. Well, first look for hyphen hyphen database URL at the command line, and then if that's not there, we look for database URL as an environment variable. And uh, if that's not there and you enabled the .n feature, which you would have had to have opted out of to not use, so by default, then we also look for a .n file. You look for a .m file, so not even necessarily in the environment? Right. Well, so if it, basically, if you've comp- actually, if you've, it's the other way around. If you've compiled diesel with the .n feature, which again is enabled by default, we'll look for the .m file, run .n before looking in the environment. That said, .m does not override existing environment variables. So if you have an actual environment variable, that will always take precedence over. Right. Yeah, so the, the, the precedence just ends up being command line argument, environment variable, .m file. Cool. Hmm. And that's a diesel-specific environment variable, or is that like a... It's, called, it's just called database URL. No, I meant the flag on whether or not you should check for a .m file. So that's just that's based on the features you compile the application with. Okay, and by default. And by default, so unless you so you would install it with cargo install diesel CLI, mm-hmm. and unless you pass hyphen hyphen no default features, you'll right. have .env support. Okay. Cool. Which this is that's a, another general frustration that I want to fix eventually because just eager loading code is harder in not interpreted languages or not mm-hmm. eager loading uh, lazy loading code is harder in not interpreted languages. Mm-hmm. So like. If you do right now cargo install diesel CLI, that will fail unless you have libsqlite and libmysql and libpq installed on your system. Okay, right. Because I want this to like just work for everybody by default. But it also means I need a whole bunch of dependencies I don't care about if I'm just caring about Postgres. Right. And so, I mean, the way you work around it is you do hyphen hyphen no default features, hyphen hyphen features Postgres, which is fine. But like one of the things I want to eventually do is swap it out so that those libraries only attempt to get linked if you try to uh, use diesel CLI with a URL that would match those. Okay. Yeah. It's a good chat about migrations, I think. Give yeah, me some I stuff not, to sue on. <laughs> I did not expect to spend 45 minutes talking yeah, about migrations. I, when I brought that up, I, I just meant to be like, hey, this library exists. It's kind of cool. I didn't think we were going to get a whole episode out of that. Well, but it ties in with uh, a sudden topic of interest of mine. <laughs> sure. <laughs> If you want to hear more about Rails migrations, you can come to my talk at RailsConf in Pittsburgh on April 17th through 19th. Get your tickets now. I was going to say, though, you know, very early on, of course, this is uh, going to come off as I'm just biased and promoting my thing. But you were mentioning having a segment of what if we don't do this. Yeah. Diesel CLI might make a reasonable case study for comparison because I, th- I think it probably is designed more or less how you would like a thing to be. If you didn't have a Ruby DSL and people can go use it if they want to. Right. And that would give me an excuse to try it. Right. And be like, could you use something like this with another library with Rails? Like, what if you got rid of all this? If you're really interested in unlocking like everything that SQL can do for you um, with something like this. And and I just don't know if it's actually I haven't mapped out the full talk yet. And I don't know if it's actually appropriate for me. Like the track is understanding the internals of Rails. Right. So that's a little bit of a departure, but we'll see. 
<laughs> well, and, the, and then the comparison you would be making, right, isn't just Rails migration DSL to diesel. It would be Rails migrations where the only thing that you do in your migrations is called dot, you know, execute right. large string for both up and down, right. which you could totally do. And at that point, and then having structure.sql. I think really the, the the main benefit Diesel would provide there is just it's SQL files. Right. Well, you could have some sort of abstraction like we do with SQL where you're like execute SQL migration, right? Or SQL migration something. Sure. But then you have this other file that you're going to and you have to bounce back and forth between the two, that kind of thing. Yeah. But One of the things that is just, it's such a small feature of Rust, but I love it so much is they just have a macro, include stir and include mm-hmm. bytes. It just takes another file path, and it either includes it as a string literal or a binary literal in your in your source code. So that way, when I do have, like in Crates.io, there's one place where I have a SQL query that is like you know 100 lines long, and I can't express it in Diesel's query builder, and I just want to write it as SQL, and I can put it in an actual .SQL file, and my editor, you know, mm-hmm. checks it for syntax and uh, highlights it properly and auto indents it nicely, and then it just. But there's no runtime go open this file and read its contents. It's just in your final binary as if it were a string literal. Right. And like there are occasionally advantages to having it as a a proper Ruby string, right? And that like if you wanted to interpolate into it, if you had like an array of tables you wanted to mutate in some way and you just interpolate into the same string or something like that. Yeah. My counter argument is don't. Or you could also write it in PL, PSQL or whatever. Would it P- you could. Whatever. But again, my counter argument is just don't. <laughs> Counter argument noted and mostly agreed with. (laughs) (laughs) All Um, right. Should we wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap up. Okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 142. As always, ratings, reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.